This podcast is part of the Tremula Network, adventure and outdoor podcasts off the beaten track. To find out more, head to tremula.network or find us on socials. Seize Your Adventure is part of the Tremula Network, adventure and outdoor podcasts off the beaten track. Seize Your Adventure is supported by patrons. If you'd like to support me in creating this podcast and increasing the crossover between epilepsy and adventure, head to patreon.com forward slash seize your adventure. If you look at the look at the statistics in the UK, 40% of people are completely inactive, no exercise at all and you know difficult to get motivated, difficult to do anything and they've got and subsequently there are co-conditions so it might be diabetes or obesity, whatever those happen to be. But for people with epilepsy, the number is nearer 80%. So straight away, we're talking about 40% of the population in the UK who have epilepsy, who've stopped doing exercise. And my researcher looked at those that 40% of people and found out why they'd stopped doing exercise and would they go back if they, if they could have a look at a plan that I sketched out for them. Hello adventurers, I am Fran Tarowskis and you are listening to Seize Your Adventure. I just want to straight away ask you to pause and think about the statistic you just heard my guest say. 80% of people with epilepsy are inactive, which is double the general population of the UK. You might remember that last year I did an episode called Can I Do Adventure Sport with Epilepsy? And in that episode, I talked about a table from the International League Against Epilepsy that is currently the most in-depth and diverse guidance we have for taking part in sport and exercise with epilepsy. Well, that table was sent to me by today's guest, Ian Johnston, who at that time was in the middle of writing his dissertation on the relationship between epilepsy and exercise. Sport and exercise has always been a part of Ian's life. He's taken part in pretty intense running races since he was a kid. He worked as a football coach and he spent family holidays dabbling in adventure sports. But when Ian was diagnosed with epilepsy, that all changed. When he was 48, Ian started having tonic-clonic seizures for no apparent reason and his life went from being very active very sedentary. In today's chat, Ian talks about some of the reasons that this might be and why other people with epilepsy might also be inactive. We'll hear how Ian's epilepsy diagnosis was what pushed him to go to university and study a degree in clinical exercise physiology. And we hear more about his dissertation, which was titled The Influence of Epilepsy on Habitual Physical Activity and the Propensity to Change Based on an Approximate Understanding of Seizure Time. Don't worry, it is not as complicated as it sounds, but do get ready to learn a lot. This is my chat with Ian Johnston. We'll 
go into a little bit more the ins and outs of the master's degree that you took because you sent across to me your dissertation and um, it was, if you excuse the pun, quite mind-blowing in terms of some of the things that you've looked into and um, how little information you had to go on as well. Um, So we'll go into that a little bit later on. If you can tell us a little bit more about your life pre-epilepsy. So you were saying you were 48 when you had your first seizure. So did this come completely out of the blue or was there anything that triggered it? Um, Absolutely out of the blue, as far as I know. Um, And I've tried to look back and try and um, compare with when I had subsequent seizures as to whether there was any kind of pattern. There was there was nothing really going on in my life at the time. So, you know, when when people talk about the the big stresses in your life of getting married or divorced or buying a house or or all these big things, um, there was none of those going on at the time. It was you know completely out of the blue, so really unexpected. Can you can you go into a little bit of detail about what your life was like before diagnosis, because it was very different to to after diagnosis wasn't it i guess typical of lots of boys and and young men um i was completely into doing sports i guess from the age of about 10 i've tried to play football all the time as much as possible when i was 12 the great north run started and we did the great north run when we were 12 and you know against all of the safety advice now where you've got to be 17 or 18 since about 2000 when my first son was born I've probably done a marathon every two years maybe every three years so a lot of training uh, continually doing a lot of training we would go on family holidays doing adventure stuff skiing holidays going to the lake district and going up and down hills all the kind of things that an active person would do and and that literally stopped overnight for me mm. well I think um you you say an active person but it sounds to me like you're a little bit above the average of active there um I think for some some folks that aren't familiar with the great north run can you just tell us exactly what that one is because to do that when you were 12 did you say yeah. uh it's quite quite impressive start to your your active career as it were so can you just um tell tell folks exactly how long that run is the, the great north run um it, it claims to be the the world's biggest half marathon currently um i think there are maybe 50 or 55,000 participants but in the early days when it started it was it was just some kind of magical thing. Distance running was becoming popular. Brendan Foster had just kind of finished his career mm-hmm. and Cram, Cohen, Ovet were big news at the time. So we kind of got the bug of running and we just thought, oh, it's another run, we can do it. And being 12, you just did a bit of running beforehand and then cracked off the a half marathon. Mm-hmm. I think we did all right, but I think that was... That was certainly the keenness and the fact that it was it's such a big event and it attracts people from all over the world now and you get half marathon world best times but not world records because it's uh it's on roads but the trains up and down so they don't really count it as a uh, world records but it's a it's a super fast course and it's the atmosphere is fantastic when you talk about it like that it 
makes it. Um, I think even non-runners listen to to people speaking about the big races like that, and it it gives you a little bit of um, incentive to to try and do more and try and do exactly. races like that where everybody is is running towards the same goal in the end. It's it's definitely part of the the bug that I have or had or um, for for doing running and exercise and um, pursuits really and that was your your life for most of most of your adult life essentially and that kind of running takes a lot out of you um but you were saying when you started having the seizures it was even even more draining essentially can you go into a little bit more detail about how the the tonic clonic seizures in particular affected your energy levels and how that stopped you essentially i think to start off with i didn't really think that i was impacted in any way because didn't really know what was going on after having um, a couple of seizures overnight one night and when you go and see the consultants they don't give you a diagnosis so I just assumed that it was business as normal so apart from you know three or four days afterwards when you feel tired after having the seizures um, I was on track to do a, a marathon locally to where I live in the northeast of England and it was just part of my I was in the regular training regime. I think it may, may have been about four months before the actual run. Um, but once the second lot came or came along, which was only about four weeks later, I found that I couldn't do anything. It was when I started taking some uh, anti-epileptics and that meant that I was too tired. I was physically too tired when I woke up in the morning to contemplate doing anything, um, let, let alone going for a run. I was, pretty much glued to the to the sofa watching daytime tv and not doing anything you know with with no work to do I couldn't get the motivation to to get out of the house very much so absolutely physically did me in and then the tablets then followed on to to make it a double whammy I guess Hello there. My name is Cathy Camleitner and I'm here to tell you about my podcast, Wild for Scotland. If you enjoy travelling, spending time outside, learning about nature or simply relaxing to a good story, check out Wild for Scotland and join me for inspiring journeys from the cobbled streets of Edinburgh to the sandy beaches of the Western Isles. We go on scenic road trips up and down the country, hop from island to island, immerse ourselves in Scottish history, culture and landscapes, and meet passionate locals who love sharing their own little corners of Scotland. Think of it like story time for adults that inspires you to head out and learn about the world around you. So join me on the Wild for Scotland podcast. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. And because of this complete change in your lifestyle, this is why you decided to to go and do your degree, wasn't it? Yeah. Was it uh, clinical exercise physiology? That's the one, yeah. It's got quite a lot of letters in it when you have to write it down on forms, but that's that's it. So was this your very first one? Was this the first time that you went to university? 
I've studied before. Um, I did a, a diploma in um, technology. Um, but what I decided to do was that because I, I was into coaching, because I was so much into sport, I, I decided to do something in sports science. For me, not being able to do exercise was probably psychology related. I wanted to understand about how to do coaching with people who needed some kind of psychological assistance. You know, I'll not say psychological help because I wouldn't call myself a, a psychologist. And from there, that's I started hunting around to do something uh, along the same sort of lines, but something that would be actually useful. The journey to actually find out what sort of course to do was was quite difficult. Because uh, if you've come from a sporting background, getting on anything that's something which is clinical or vaguely related to health is pretty challenging. Because a, a lot of the masters, if you were going to do something clinical, you would have to have done some kind of prior degree course you know maybe nursing or physiotherapy or something along those lines i ended up with clinical exercise physiology or a research master's where you could pretty much choose what you wanted to do yourself and i thought being 48 or 49 i was by the time uh, this had come around for, for me being that age i would prefer to have some taught elements which as it happens I absolutely needed them because I needed to learn a lot of new things before I could then go on and do my uh, my research part of it. In in simple terms, clinical exercise physiology is learning about a condition or conditions and then doing some kind of rehab program. And if you did a rehab program, what sort of cautions would you take? You know, make sure that people's diet, their exercise plans and all of the a whole plethora of things would be in place. It was all brand new stuff. So, you know, learning how to take blood, all sorts of stuff like taking ECG measurements. I mean, not that I would, we would have to do anything from a nursing perspective, but if you're going to do a program for somebody with a, a clinical condition, you have to understand all of those different elements. Believe it or not, the condition that I chose to, to do in my study was epilepsy. It's slightly different to, I think, everyone else who's on the course. I think everyone else had picked one of the traditional conditions. So there was lots of people who did about obesity or osteoporosis, the big killers, if you like, the ones that have the biggest impact in the UK. Um, but I, I I chose to do mine about epilepsy. Yeah. I have a couple of couple of questions from that. One thing I was thinking as you were speaking is, um, did seeing things from the other point of view give you a bit of an insight into your own condition? Do you think that helped you? Well, when I started off, it was all a bit new and nothing seemed to be familiar. And then when I started doing the the, the first part of the research, I started stumbling across things that I looked at and went, Oh, right. That's what's happening. You know, not claiming to be an expert, but understanding the sort of things that are happening inside your head when you have a seizure and then reading about it again and again and again. And then finally, the penny drops and you think, right, that's what's happening to me. And then from there, I've got such a bug and such a an interest, really. What really got me into doing all the investigations and a whole bunch of research that I could... I would never imagine I would ever have that amount of interest to do anything in really. But it's when you when you start doing the research and you go down different paths and you find, oh, well, this is about 
the health perspective, this is about tiredness and why do people have seizures and, you know, what role does alcohol play? Because that's a, that's a really big thing that I, in my mind, oh, it's all alcohol. And then find out the details of why do people really have more seizures when alcohol is involved? And some of the research says it's because when people are drunk, they forget to take the tablets. And that's mm-hmm. one of the most common reasons for alcohol being involved. Or if people are sick, added together all those little bits and pieces, point the finger at if you're involved in alcohol, even just on a regular um, night out in the pub having a couple of pints then that can impact you it's getting to understand those things that aren't just they're not they're not just the headline banners that you see in the in the newspapers it's mm. actually where the the stories originated in from the original research so uh, from that perspective I, well it was more than a full-time job really I probably did too many hours <laughs> it was the kind of the opposite of, of a, a stereotype student and I produced a nice dissertation by the end of it, which I thought, and I would like to call myself a master, if that's not being too boastful. But uh, as as far as it being a, an individual with epilepsy is concerned, I think it's been absolutely invaluable. And I think I've 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 done myself a good job. Absolutely. I think it's definitely worth calling yourself a master. I would be walking about saying it to everyone. If you can just explain the main question that you asked in your master's degree. So it was about the the time of day that people have seizures. Yeah. One of the the key things in my research was to find out for any individual if there was a a specific time of day where they would exercise, given a few different pieces of information. And the primary bit of information is when they are less likely to have a seizure. And I know that people don't always have seizures at the same time of day. And I know that if you regularly have seizures at a certain time, that doesn't prevent you from having seizures at different times of day. There's a whole range of evidence that you can go off to say that this individual is likely to have a seizure under certain circumstances. If you look at the look at the statistics in the UK, 40% of people are completely inactive no exercise at all and you know difficult to get motivated difficult to do anything and they've got and subsequently there are co-conditions so it might be diabetes or obesity whatever those happen to be but for people with epilepsy the number is near 80 percent so straight away we're talking about 40 percent of the population in the uk who have epilepsy who've stopped doing exercise and my researcher looked at those that 40 percent of people and found out why the they'd stop doing exercise and would they go back if they if they could have a look at a plan that I sketched out for them and approximately 70% of the people who'd who did no exercise said that they would do it if they were convinced that it would be safe or they could be convinced of a safer time and circumstance to do their to do their exercise did you find in your research that that was quite difficult to find research that had been done previously certainly the the area that i specialized in um, there may be some stuff out there but i could not find anything that would help me explain um, in research terms why people would stop doing exercise when they got epilepsy there was nothing that would help you come to that conclusion Mm. there was lots of supporting types of research and there's lots of different bits of background that I would have to pull in and, and piece all of these different bits together to go, right, okay, 
And then I, I kind of realized myself that it wasn't because I couldn't go out running anymore. Because physically, I, at the time, I probably could. But it was definitely my brain was saying, I don't want to go outside and fall over and be knocked down by a bus or mm. go for a swim and then sink to the bottom and not come up again. The swimming ones are the prime example for me because my, my wife's a, a lifeguard. Mm. And I and I, I still, to this day, I still won't go swimming, even with her lifeguarding. And then I trust her implicitly. It is psychological and it is something that um, you can overcome somehow. Part of the, the, the master's course was understanding how to how to deliver some kind of psychological intervention to get people to do stuff. Mm. But once I got going on the research, I thought, well, why don't I just do this exercise? I start, I went to the university gym and I joined and I could literally only lift the bottom bar on the, on the weights machines. And then, you know, there's some people on the course who'd been on the course with me were looking at us going, you can only lift the bottom bar on the, on the, on the machines. And I, I realized that, you know what, it didn't make any difference. I could actually do it. You know, if I did keel over or whatever might have happened, I was going to be all right. And because I was on the machines, the gym instructors were, were great and they were all informed about what my condition was. I just started off doing it and got back into it, basically because of what I'd seen in my research. I think that's brilliant. And it's really, it's really telling like you said, the, just making that decision to go out and do it is something that I think a lot of people find very hard. I know that I am one of them sometimes. Um, it is very interesting to hear you talking about the swimming because I have just started swimming for the first time in years and it is very psychological with me in terms of how how well I'm doing at the moment. Yeah, I'm having to have a lot of... Um, talks to myself at the side of the pool about how safe I am and that kind of thing but the the other thing that you display quite nicely there is the idea of um, adaptations which is something that a lot of people I've spoken to have have talked about yeah if you avoid anything that's going to be a potential risk at all something that I'd done for the uh, on on the masters as I as I started doing the exercise again and this wasn't a requirement of the uh, of the dissertation, but I did a, a sample program or an idealized program for a, a mythical person who had epilepsy. Mm. So that was another another sideline, if you if you like, that I added on to my dissertation, which I probably didn't have to do because it didn't really it probably didn't really add too much to it. But I put together a program based on how somebody could a be encouraged to get back into doing the exercise b do it safely and c be told and and let them understand how it was safe so the sort of things that i had in there was don't go on a treadmill because mm. if you fall over then you can bang your head don't necessarily go on an exercise bike because you're high up and you could fall over and i came to the conclusion for that particular set of exercises that I, it was a rowing machine for a couple of reasons one because you're sat on a chair which is probably about 10 inches from the floor so if the worst came to the worst and you fell over that's the least amount you could fall mm. and there, you can also buy adaptations there are certain seats or chairs i'm not quite sure what you call them on rowing machines that 
serious rowers and professional rowers practice with so that it's in the shape of what you'd actually sit in inside um, the boats Mm. and you can actually get big velcro pads that velcro you in so if you did have a seizure you wouldn't even fall off you'd Mm. still be in place and you would be protected to some degree so doing bits and pieces like that to help make it safe in my mind that's something that I could use from a psychological perspective to say this can help you this can safeguard you this can put something in your mind that's going to put your mind at ease if you like and say look we've done absolutely everything possible and if it happens it happens there's nothing you can do about it yeah and you say that that was um surplus to requirements as it were with your your actual degree but i think that that is one of the most important things of this kind of research and work it's that being able to apply it to a in this case fictional woman but then being able to take that out into practice at some point now that you've done all of the research have you started looking into doing it in a bit more of a practical way i have yes um but there are a couple of things that kind of stump me at the moment there's there's very little in the way of training programs that you can you can copy from i think i mentioned before that there's a bible the american college of sports medicine book um and that's the the uh, the volume the book that you get that everyone prepares the exercise plans from based on what the american college of sports medicine say uh, here's a handy copy i've got in front of me <laughs> if you if i look through for example if I look through let's say diabetes so there's 30 pages on diabetes and what you should what you should look for and the back bits of the background if you turn to the epilepsy page, there's five pages. There's very little that you can actually understand. So there's pretty much no opportunities to, to go and learn those things. So that's kind of given me a, a slightly less confidence in being able to deliver a program. I can, I'm, I'm happy to design the program, but actually delivering it would be more difficult because it, there'd be more hurdles to, to overcome to actually get somebody to say from a, a medical point of view. Mm this is the right sort of thing because the interest just isn't there. But on the plus side though, if for my local epilepsy support group, I can, I would quite happily say to somebody, these are the sort of things that I would talk to you about. I'm not going to recommend anything because I'm not an epilepsy clinician, mm. but this is what I've done. And this is the, here's the evidence. I've, I've, I've done all this research and I know that these sort of things happen and these are the tools that you should use and, these are the safeguards that you should do. You know, it's it's just simple things like seemingly or apparently um, some people have their seizures triggered by going to exhaustion and doing an excessive amount of exercise, whereas some people do a, a smaller amount of exercise and, and suffer the same fate. And some people, when they do resistance training, um, that might trigger a seizure for them. And then when you look deeper into the... Uh, into the research, you'll find out it's the exact opposite for some other people. It was difficult from that perspective to to work out how I'd take it forward in a career. It's kind of like a, a clinical version of a personal trainer. Mm. It, it's certainly helpful for people to just know that they can, again, it comes back to this um, adapting things to your own your own abilities essentially and your own yeah. preferences i mean for me um the uh the the idealized time for me to do exercise 
and taking it into, into account all of those different bits and pieces that I put in was approximately one hour before sunset. I mean, you say approximately, but that's quite precise and that's really, really nice information to have. And that's, I mean, that's for me and that's, that's using a whole bunch of things like your circadian rhythm, you know, and it's not the time of day, but it's the, it's where it's dawn or dusk and all this, this, this vast amount of information that you can only piece together for an individual. Mm. I'd be quite confident now saying to, to Ian Johnston in 2017, this is what you should do. I'd be, I'd be pretty confident saying that to, to me, that there's my exercise time of day. Yeah. It's beautiful. With this information, as you say, it's very difficult to to give somebody else any advice, as it were. But would you say that there's anything in particular that people could take to their doctor or ask their doctor to do something similar on a a much less scientific level if they're going to do things themselves? Well, there's a couple of things that I would say straight away, um, and that's Make sure that your doctor is somebody who, even if it's your epilepsy clinician, find out if they know about exercise and epilepsy because it's very, it's a very small circle of people. Um, I, I, I got on the phone to um, a guy in Portugal, a guy in Brazil, and a guy in Norway who, they're I'm kind of like a fanboy for them now because I, I, I followed all of the research that they all published there are very few people who are really into it. And if you speak to different other different clinicians, they'll say, well, you know, it's up to you and you should, you should stay fit generally. But so you need to find somebody who will buy into the idea of you you should do exercise based on this information I know about you. And if that's the case, I would say the primary thing to go off is keep a detailed seizure diary. For any individual, have your, your detailed seizure diary and you'll know yourself when you're likely to have seizures. Try and put as many of those things together as you possibly can and try and work it out yourself and, and take the evidence to your doctor and say, this is what I found. What do you think? Mm. And how are you doing exercise these days? What's your regime now? Well, from the day I started doing my exercise and I and I can honestly say I didn't have some kind of epiphany and there was no big lightning strike my first sort of exercise apart from doing very minimal resistance exercising in the gym was my pals knocking on the door and walking the 500 yards down to the seafront and walk along the beach and that would take 45 minutes to an hour to walk a mile in total maybe mm. two miles in total so that's where that's where I was at the at the start of that process, and then I just started doing stuff again. I didn't have any particular plans. I felt that I could go running and do more distance. I started off by running some five k races, which in total they might have lasted thirty five minutes when I started. Um, now I'm pretty much doing them in. 19 or 20 minutes in the particular run I do is about third or fourth in my age category which um, it's pretty good so I'm I'm using that uh, as the as the basis for doing some more runs with the idea that 
I've put my name down to do a marathon later on this year. Oh, that's fantastic. Which one are you looking at doing? I'm doing the Kielder Marathon, which is on Kielder Reservoir, which is in Kielder Forest in the north of Northumberland. It's right on the border with Scotland. Yeah. And it's fantastic place. It's fantastic countryside. It's one of the few dark skies areas in the in the country where you can oh. see all the star constellations at night time. There's no light pollution. It's an absolutely fantastic place. And after having done lots of city marathons, this will be my first marathon that's in the countryside. Uh, you run around a reservoir and you're inside the forest the whole distance. So that's my extra incentive for me training, and that's to to get fit enough to do a decent time. And a decent time for me will be quite difficult there because it's whilst it's not up and down. Uh, mountains or anything like that it's it's definitely you you might describe it as being undulating mm. it's the it's the event for me there are only i think there are only maybe two or three thousand people who do it that sounds fab so uh middle of october is that one i might have to put that in the diary is there still yeah. is there still spaces for it um <laughs> it I, sounds I think beautiful so. um we went up for a, f- a family holiday there we had two days of freezing cold rain, and on the third day we were there. The sun came out, and we were in the trees in a uh, in a small guest house, and it was just fantastic. Mm. And I thought, well, yeah, if that's if that's somewhere where I can do the run, then that's that that's going to be it for me. The name of the podcast is "Seize Your Adventure." So, what is your adventure? What does adventure mean to you? It's definitely different to what it used to be. Because uh, adventure for me previously would have been going on holiday to somewhere where you've never been before, so somewhere in the middle of China, that kind of thing. But adventure for me now, it's really just doing sports with my kids. As always, Ian and I were talking for much longer than I could fit into the episode today, and the topic veered into some less relevant aspects of neuroscience and big data. If anyone else is interested in that more technical side of things, you can get in touch with Ian to ask about his dissertation. He is very happy to chat about the dissertation itself, forming an exercise program or anything else. The contact information is in the show notes for you. Anyone who is interested, I will be uploading a longer version of this interview to the Seizure Adventure Patreon page. So patrons at the Adventure Advocate level and above will be able to listen to that longer interview after the weekend. I would like to give a massive big thank you to my current patrons. I can't tell you how happy I was to see that $10 go into my account and even though it has already gone straight out to pay for my email address, it does mean a lot to have that support. If you are in a position to support financially and you do find value in the work that I do with Seizure Adventure, please do head over to patreon.com forward slash Seizure Adventure You can become an adventure ally for $3 a month and there are various levels of support all the way up to producer level, which is $250 a month. And that basically helps to produce and pay for one full episode. 
I know that not everyone can support financially, particularly at the moment, and I still see you and appreciate all of you. Please do keep sharing the episodes around. Let me know when you do so I can thank you personally. I want to give my guest the last word today. At the end of the conversation, Ian told me about some of his influences, including the footballer Leon Legg and the sports coach Daniel Beddo. Now, apologies to Daniel. Neither of us could remember his name as we were recording, but please do go and look him up, Daniel Beddo. So I will leave you with Ian's thoughts on that. And until next time, safe adventures, everyone. There's definitely something I would say to to anybody who's interested in doing this kind of thing. I've, and even though I'm a, a middle-aged married man with kids, I'm a fanboy of quite a number of people. And I've hunted some of these people down from, um, from Instagram, from Twitter, from LinkedIn, and basically from writing emails to people. And, and the people that I've found are people who are an inspiration or they've helped in some way. So, for example, the latest person who I'm a fan of is a footballer called Leon Legg. Now, he's recently been on TV talking about his epilepsy and he started off um, a, a blog himself. And I'd previously been in touch with him because he promoted my my research, and got some people to take part in my research because of the number of followers that he had. And finding those people for me, if anybody wanted to get not necessarily inspiration, but just get some comfort, that there are other people who are thinking about the same kind of things. So there's him and there's a guy, and I wish I could remember his name. He's um, a sports scientist for Watford Football Club. And he's he was on Sky News at the weekend. And it was fantastic. He explained that he worked in sport and he could work in sport. And people would look after you. And if you wanted to do exercise, people were there to help. And it was because he was in this privileged position of working for a professional football club, he was able to put that message across. And it was it was fantastic. So there's a whole load of people like that who you find by hunting around. And previous to that, you sit thinking it's, it's all doom and gloom and there's, there's nothing you can do. And who can you speak to? Because... You've never heard about epilepsy before. You don't even know what it is. And it's something to do with people having fits. That's it. That's the extent of my knowledge beforehand. But if you hunt these people out, you can find lots of good stuff. This podcast is part of the Tremula Network. Adventure and outdoor podcasts off the beaten track. To find out more, head to tremula.network.